Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Walter Tavis, who died in 1984 at the age of 56, only wrote six novels. The first was The Hustler, which was adapted into a classic film with Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason. And the second, The Man Who Fell to Earth, was adapted into another classic movie starring David Bowie. Later came two science fiction novels, Mockingbird in 1980 and Steps of the Sun in 1983. Also in 1983 was The Queen's Gambit, which is now a Netflix miniseries. And his final novel, The Color of Money, a sequel to The Hustler with a different plot than the Scorsese film, came out the year of his death, 1984. This interview was recorded in the stairwell of Cody's Bookstore in Berkeley in October 1981 on the publication of Tevis's only short story collection, Far From Home. My co-hosts were Richard A. Lupoff and Lawrence Davidson. Norman Spinrad called uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth a single-entry novel into the science fiction genre by a so-called mainstream novelist. He also referred to you as uh, an SF novice. In view of the fact that The Man Who Fell to Earth was published in 1963, that you had been publishing stories in Galaxy, If, and Fantasy and Science Fiction since 1957, uh, how do you feel about uh, the appellation of SF novice? I was pissed, uh, and I thought he was wrong. Maybe he didn't know about those stories. They had Some of them had dwelled in obscurity for several years, and the thing I was mainly known for at the time I did The Man of Felt Earth was The Hustler, which, is, which everybody thinks, anyway, is pretty far from science fiction. I've worked both sides of the street for some time, still am. I'm, you know, that was a long time ago, and uh, right now in my life, I'm not sure whether I'm a science fiction writer or not. Mm-hmm. But I think I've written enough science fiction that, you know, willy-nilly, I am. About those early science fiction stories of yours, uh, from 1957 onward, those are collected in Far From Home. Right. Would you talk a bit about the editors you worked with on those stories, how those stories came to be written, and how the relationship worked between yourself and your publishers? Had no relationship with my publishers, whatever. I was teaching in small towns, teaching high school English in small towns in Kentucky at the time, and I merely wrote them, and I sent them off, and I prayed for a check. There was no... Uh, editorial, you know, impedance or assistance that I can recall. I do remember that one or two of them were bought by Robert Mills, who later became my agent uh, as a result of an elaborate series of events. But uh, it was just a case of writing them, sending them off. It was sort of like uh, entering coupons in a raffle or something and waiting to see what happened. I would like to say about those stories, they were a kind of thing that really charmed me at the time. I don't know if I could do them now or would want to do them now, but at the time I was very much caught up in the uh, extrapolation of a sort of a simple what-if idea in a science fiction story, you know, or what, and especially uh, devices that turned upon you know, some kind of an unusual substance, an unusual invention, or something like that. I really liked that. 
I think in a deeper way, it was a way of staying away from my feelings, of being able to write off the top of my head. I was a very good chess player in those days, too, and I think the same kind of mentality was involved. You know, this is something I can do without really getting my guts involved. Yes. Which was the bouncing ball story? The big bounce, it's called. You know, that was a lot of fun, that idea. That idea really got to me, and I still like it, the idea of making a simple conversion of thermal energy into electrical energy or some or kinetic energy of some kind or another. You know, the, the idea of that story, I recall very much, came from my buying my first air conditioner and realizing I was going to have to plug money into the system and put electricity into the system in order to put energy in the system in order to remove energy from my room. And it seemed horrendous, and I wanted to find some way around it. You know, there's some way you could you know, sell that energy or get rid of it, and I invented a rubbery compound that would um, cool off and uh, deliver additional velocity each time it bounced. Isaac Asimov later told me it was impossible, that I was violating the second law of thermodynamics, but <laughs> I was in another state where that law didn't apply. You mentioned Isaac Asimov, which brings up uh, something that Dick and I were discussing before. What contact, physical contact, did you have during the 50s and early 60s with other science fiction writers? I spent about an hour and a quarter with Harlan Ellison once, <laughs> and, that, and, I, and that was it, that was it. I, I was a high school English teacher in Kentucky at the time, very much outside of the circuit of science fiction writers, and I've actually met very few of them, and uh, it just it just is, happens to do with the places I've been living. For, for 13 years after I taught high school, I became a college professor in Athens, Ohio, and there just aren't many science fiction writers around. There's one, Dan Keyes, who was a good friend of mine, who wrote Flowers for Algernon, and he and I played chess and poker and shot pool and saw each other all the time. Did you ever think of writing a story together? Nope. Nope. We're very competitive with one another. We're good friends, but uh, it wouldn't work. I wrote a story together with Ted Cogswell, Theodore R. Cogswell, years and years ago. Uh, it was published in a British science fiction magazine uh, as written by Tevis Cogswell. Can't even remember the title of it, but we got 15 bucks for it. The other night, I, I, The Hustler was on the tube. Yeah. And I was I was watching and wondering about some of the references, knowing that you had come from Oakland and the kid had... Eddie, I came Eddie. from San Francisco. It's a disguised autobiographical uh, reference. <laughs> the past Eddie comes from Oakland, right. Uh, but I was, I was wondering whether or not, you know, how fluid you were as a pool player. I was sort of a B-minus pool player. I suspect I could beat anybody in this room, but I could not play against professionals with any hope of winning. Much of the pool room scene, as it appears in The Hustler, was made up by me. and was not the way that pool rooms really look. I didn't know that much about pool rooms, although I didn't know something about them. But pool rooms have come to resemble The Hustler since. <laughs> in fact, I've heard that at least two pool hustlers have had their thumbs broken uh, since The Hustler was written. And, you know, that never happened. And then there's a fat guy who goes around calling himself Minnesota Fats which is astonishing to me. Oh, your yeah. Minnesota Fest came first. Yes, indeed. I thought it was based on I know, everybody, a lot of people, yeah, people ask me, when did you first meet Minnesota Fest? And I feel like Walt Disney being asked, when did you meet Donald Duck? <laughs> <laughs> so, come on, I made him up, one of my contributions to American folklore. We talked about the uh, West Coast reference, by the way. I was thinking as I drove up here, I was trying to think of witty things to say, I was thinking uh, that uh, of a very true thing, that... Uh, there were a question of where did the man who fell to earth fall from? He fell from San Francisco. <laughs> and, uh, and I can go into that, but essentially that, that book is a very disguised autobiography. It is based upon my own feelings from time to time that I'm from another planet, feelings which I'm not altogether negated within myself, which I tried to negate within myself with booze over a large number of years. But it has to do with my having moved from this, what I felt was the city of light, San Francisco, when I was 11, 
to the other side of the tracks in Lexington, Kentucky, where I went to a tough Appalachian school in the fifth grade and was beaten up regularly. And when I went there, I went after having been a year and a half in the Stanford Convalescent Hospital for Children. I was skinny, weak. I had had to spend a full year in bed. They didn't even let me out of bed to go to the toilet. And I wasn't aware of this consciously when I was writing The Man of Fell to Earth. But I certainly, it, you know, just knocked me over when I read the book afterwards in galleys. You know, that was, of course, what I was doing. I was, it was as though I had been living in a low-gravity planet. And as you know, the, although in the movie, The Man of Fell to Earth winds up in, in uh, New Mexico. That's because Nick Rowe, the director, likes deserts. But in the, in the novel, he winds up in Kentucky. And it was me coming from San Francisco to Kentucky. Okay, that was a very elaborate answer to a question about Fast Eddie and, and Oakland. How did you feel about the movie? I give it a C plus. What do you think about Bowie? Oh, I think he was terrific. That was genius casting. I think that was really wonderful. And he's a wonderful man. I had um, that book. I sold five movie options to. It came out in 1963, and the the movie wasn't made until I think 76 or something like that, 75. And I had five different uh, producers option it. In fact, I made more money out of movie options than I did on (laughs) book sales. And I would talk with these various producers about who would play the part and uh, seriously consider were such people as uh, Peter O'Toole and Oscar Werner and James Coburn. In fact, James Coburn wrote me. He wanted to buy an option on uh, the book for a piffling sum, uh, but when it was already optioned to somebody else and I couldn't sell it to him. I can imagine James Coburn as, well, it wouldn't be too bad, the white hair, the tall, skinny finger and all. But it would never, and I knew who David Bowie was. My kids played his records all the time over my protests, you know. Were you, were you startled? Never would have occurred to me. I was startled. I really was startled. But it seemed right. It really did seem right. And when I met him, it seemed even more right. Uh, what you feel about Rogue as a director? He's got a very good eye. He's got a good visual sense. We fought a lot, and uh, you know it is. And there is no question. I don't think I, when a novelist sells his book to the movies, I think uh, he has to defer to a large extent to the director. It's a director's medium, and you can't have everybody saying how to make the movie. Uh, but with, with due recognition of that fact, I think that he feels that it isn't art if you can understand it. And I hate that notion. I really hate it. And I think when you do a parable, which is more or less what I do in science fiction, uh, you have to be upfront about what's going on in the foreground. You know, to put myself in a very high category for the sake of illustration. I think, say, that Jesus Christ and uh, Franz Kafka are very good tellers of parables. And uh, you never wonder in a Jesus Christ story, you know, how many sheep and shepherds are being talked about, and you know, and who lost what sheep, and who planted the mustard seed, and all that kind of. Thing. You may not know how to take it. In fact, people have fought and died on battlefields throughout the Middle Ages over how to take these parables, but you know what's going on in the foreground. And people will say about Franz Kafka stories, you know, I don't understand it. I, well, they do understand it. You know what's going on. You just don't know how to take it. It's very difficult. And I want people to know what's going on in the Man of Thunder. And in Nick Rogue's presentation of the movie, you don't. There are a lot of things you just don't know about. And, and to hell with that. I want that all to be clear. How do you feel about reading the book and then seeing the movie? You know, in my case, since I wrote the book, I have my own very strong images of what the characters look like and what their voices are like and so forth. There's a certain wincing that you get when you hear your dialogue spoken. You know, you say, that isn't the way it sounds. That isn't the way he looks. So, on the other hand, there were a couple of scenes in the Man Who Fell to Earth movie over which I really cried. I was whacked. I mean, it was crying for myself. It is Margaret you mourn for. You know, I was, uh, because I could really get you know, something that I hadn't been able to see in the book itself. The, the, the movie, it's like seeing your own dream you know, suddenly thrown at you in an incredible deja vu. Certainly. You don't see it so clearly when you're reading the book because you're used to the language and you, you know, you're protected from 
what your book means. But when you see a version that goes through somebody else's set of filters, it can be overwhelming. Recall specifically what those moments were. Yeah, there were some of them that had to do with my alcoholism. Now, The Man of Felt Earth is about my becoming an alcoholic, really. That's my private story, and, and about my, my sense of my own physical weakness and my sense of my not really being human. The quality, I, you know, Spofforth and Mockingbird is the same thing to some extent. Mockingbird is about coming out of alcoholism. At least it's, for me it is. I don't necessarily demand that people understand it that way. But that's what it means to me. A scene where he vomits into uh, a uh, wastebasket in the hotel room, as I have done and to wastebaskets in a hotel room, you know, being your garden variety alcoholic, I've had all those experiences, and have had some of them before I wrote that book, although I was, you know, I was sort of on the threshold of alcoholism when I wrote it. I'd sobered up from an eight-month drunk to write it. And then just the sense of his awkward movement and the pain of moving around, which I had felt as a child so, so much after that convalescence, and his feeling generally of goodwill toward people, but being afraid of them. I'd like to uh, go on about that business of movies, and, because something else came to my mind when you asked about it. I had to reread The Man of Felder Earth and The Hustler not so long ago. And when I read The Man of Felder Earth, I did not see David Bowie in my imagination as my character. I saw Thomas Jerome Newton, who is not me, really. You know, I, I see him as a very white-haired, very thin person with a dark complexion, quite tall, very narrow on the shoulders. And the description doesn't quite really fit me. But when I read The Huster, which I know is older, but, uh, but when I read The Huster, I cannot see my characters. I can't see Fast Eddie and I can't see Minnesota Fats. I see uh, you know, Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason. And, you know, and it's, it's infuriating. You know, damn it, you, you've, you've raped my imagination. And, and that was the case, you know, and it's not, that's not the timeline, because that was the case 15 years ago that I had lost you know, the memory, as it were, of what those characters look like. Maybe that's a testimony to the fact that The Hustler is a better movie, at least in my view, than Man of Felder Earth, or, or, or I don't know. But anyway, it, it certainly is testimony to the fact that the movies can rape the imagination. And when the author can't remember what his own characters look like, it's certainly something. How involved are you with the upcoming uh, PBS version of Mockingbird? Very thoroughly. I wrote the script, and I really like it, too. I had to go out and buy a Barnes & Noble 295 book on how to write screenplays, which was a real turnoff. I'm the sort of person who you know reads a book on how to collect stamps, and I'm up to my ears in philately. You know, I had worked on the screenplay of The Hustler, but that had been a long time ago, and you do it differently these days. And somebody else had really been in charge of that, but I was given total charge of the screenplay. I'll be involved in Mockingbird. I'll be involved in the production and post-production, editing, everything all along line, so uh, it'll be the kind of, I hope, it'll be the kind of movie I want it to be. Uh, any casting down yet? Not, don't even have a director yet. They're raising money. They've got a big budget set for it. They hope to do it for $2 million, which for public television is an incredible amount of money. They did The Lathe of Heaven, which is the previous work in the yeah. series, for 850000 I think. And they did a handsome production on it. But Mockingbird, if they do it the way I wrote it, if they can afford to and can get the money will cost more. Having Spofforth up on top of the Empire State Building, looking down at a New York with few of the tall buildings left, that's ex that's expensive if you do it right. And if you don't do it right, it's terrible. I, I would rather write it out of the script if they can't get the budget, if they can't hire the, the Star Wars people or whatever to do the math <laughs> to make it look good. I should know in about a month uh, whether the money's been raised or not. In both of your science fiction novels, you make references to Bruegel's Fall of Icarus. Why are you so fascinated with it? You know, it's, oddly enough, it's Auden's poem about the painting that I love so much. I'm just crazy about that poem. I like Auden. I'd like to ask a little about your, your own background in science fiction. Uh, I know in a press release that we got, you mentioned Fritz Leiber and Theodore Sturgeon. Did you read, when you were growing up, did you read the pulps at all? Sure, I did indeed. Every one that I could steal, I stole many of them. 
uh, amazing stories, fantastic adventures, both Ziff Davis, uh, astounding science fiction, which was Street and Smith in those days, and super science, thrilling wonder tales, the whole bit in the late 30s and early 40s. Everything I could get my hands on. Any favorite writers from that period? Stanley G. Weinbaum, uh, Nelson S. Bond. I could start naming stories like The Fertility of Dalrymple Todd or Sojar of Titan. Anyway, sure, I, I was up to my armpits in science fiction for years and years. And then I quit reading it when I was something like, uh, I, I don't know, 18. I would pick up an occasional book, you know, that I'd heard about. But I've not really been totally immersed in it since then. Although, since I've just finished yet another science fiction novel, I've got now four science fiction books in a row. It's about damn time I, you know, got back into it and found out whether I'm, you know, whether I'm 20 years behind what's going on. You're not. I hope it was intentional on your part, but the opening scene was the most bizarre and totally successful piece of black humor that I had read in years about a robot trying to commit suicide and can't do it. Gee, I didn't think of it that way. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the effect that it had on you. I was writing out of my own suicide attempt, out of a couple of them, and, uh, and trying to make a parallel with uh, Spockworth and King, King Kong. King Kong moved me greatly when I was about five or six years old. I really responded to the ape and to his feelingfulness, you know. And I didn't catch on to it then, but I did catch on later, I think when I first read Frankenstein, maybe, to that factor that in the non-human character and works like that, you get a tremendous emotional charge, especially when they are surrounded by such stick figures as they usually are. The people aren't worth a shit in, you know, in King Kong or in Frankenstein or in 2001, as opposed to Hal the Computer or the Frankenstein Monster or King Kong, whom I loved, you know, and whom the writer apparently, the writer can allow himself to pour out a lot of feelingfulness on those non-human characters, which of course is what I do with Newton and the Manifold Earth and uh, with uh, Spoffer the Mocking. But actually, yeah, the, that that scene has a literary source in a sense. It's uh, kind of borrowed from the Scarlet Letter, which opens opens on the scaffold in the center of town with Hester and her public appearance before everybody. Nobody's there to look at Spafford, and then closes with her on the scaffold in the center of town. A lot of the Man of Fell to Earth, I was embarrassed to discover, was kind of borrowed uh, from a movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still, in which skinny Michael Rennie plays a, a benign visiting spaceman. And, you know, it's a very, it's a, so, I know, they're not at all alike, really. He's handing out diamonds to Patricia Neal and all, and saying, Katu Barada, Nikto, and all that stuff. But, you know, when I saw the movie a few years after writing The Man of Earth, it was really kind of embarrassing, because I, I realized I made some unconscious borrowings from it. I want to ask you two questions about other books. First of all, you just mentioned that you have another science fiction novel coming how much do you want to say about that now, or is that, you know, a sealed matter? Well, can we stay here until next Thursday? <laughs> well, I will have. <laughs> uh, it's tentatively titled Belson. I will probably change the title because it, uh, I don't want to invoke the concentration camp of the same name. It's, uh, it takes place in New York and in outer space in the 21st century. It's the most autobiographical novel I've written. It's a first-person quasi-comic book novel. Its main character, Benjamin Belson, is a New York real estate tycoon who, in, at, at the age of 50, uh, discovers that his sex life has gone bluey, he's gotten impotent, thing which happened to me briefly, thank God. Everything in his life is messed up. He's tired of making money, he's tired of this, he's tired of that. He buys a Chinese spaceship 
there had been space explorations for uranium in the earlier part of the 21st century, but they hadn't worked, and uh, he, he buys a mothballed Chinese spaceship called the Flower of Heavenly Repose. Uh, the Chinese have gone back to the old nomenclature. Through a woman named Pear Blossom Lu, he buys this spaceship, <laughs> and heads out into space hunting for safe uranium to use uh, since the Denver incident and things of that sort. Uranium plants have been difficult, but there's an isotope of uranium only found on other planets, you, under, you fellows understand. The book opens with him in a chemical sleep on board his spaceship, working out on zero-gravity Nautilus machines, getting rid of his pot and building up his muscle. You know, in zero gravity, you can't use weights, you have to use springs. But he's got a trainer with him on board his spaceship. The spaceship is furnished with antiques, and he is, uh, and it has a gym. And the trainer puts him into the Nautilus machines while he's asleep, and he works out. But while he's sleeping, he regresses in memory to his childhood, and is discovering some of the trauma that had caused the sexual ups and the other thing that had messed up his life. It's really me doing psychotherapy to some extent, you know, disguised as science fiction. It's like me sobering up is what Mockingbird is about, you know, and the like. And uh, I'm crazy about the book. I really love it. Uh, I've got to rewrite the last 125, 150 pages, which I wrote too quickly, but uh, it's all done, and I really like it a lot. Doubleday's going to publish it. The other one I wanted to ask you about is a book that doesn't exist, but ought to, and that is, uh, you have a fair number of uncollected short stories. You, you mentioned earlier this little one that you did with Coswell, but you also have some non-science fiction short stories. Oh, yeah. yeah. How much uh, uncollected Tevis fiction is there, and what chances do we have of, of ever seeing it in covers? Oh, gosh, there are about, I guess, 25 stories or so, uh, a lot of them about pool players, which I wouldn't want to publish. Partly because I borrowed from them for the hustler, and uh, and they do resemble one another too much. And then there are a bunch of pieces of magazine fiction dating from the fifties that, that I like a lot. I'm very fond of. I don't know. I you know every now and then somebody suggests to me collecting them and putting them out. Maybe I will someday. Well, whose idea was far from home? Mine. You select all the stories for it. Yep. I wrote a couple, especially for it. A visit from mother and daddy. The two stories that I liked the best in there. And I did try to peddle them to magazines, but it was no dice. They're kind of heavy-duty stories, strong, sexually strong, that kind of thing. Rent Control is one of the most bizarre, wacko stories that I've read in the past 30 years. <laughs> there must be a background to that. <laughs> the lady in the corner will tell you all about it. <laughs> it's based on living with a lady in New York City for uh, about a year. It, really, it, it didn't happen the way it happens there, but it, based on my recognition that I was involving myself too closely and too narcissistically in a love affair. A lot of what opened up for me in writing these stories, and what's very meaningful to me now, and was useful to me in doing Belson, which I was just talking about, is my realization that I can use this psychological material in a, in a science fiction context, and it works extremely well for me. I feel very comfortable doing it that way, whereas if I were to write confessionally, autobiographically, it would just it'd be a mess. Do you feel yourself uh, doing more and more in the way of short fiction as time goes on? I am delighted to say the contrary. There was a long time when I felt that my attention span was too damn short to, to write novels. And I do write short novels, as you probably noticed. But uh, I find myself really thinking more and more in terms of the longer length. Although I, I must make an aside for one thing. I, one thing I discovered in writing a screenplay is it's a terrific length. About a, a movie is about 120 pages long. And that really is, is, is fine. There's a part of me that like to be a lyric poet. That's the real short attention span writer. You know, one first, you know, 16 lines, and there it is. If you're willing, I'd like you to talk a little bit about writing techniques and attitudes, such as how fast do you write, how long does it take you to do a short story or a novel, and so on. Yeah. Okay, I generally do a short story in a city. 
or sometimes in two days. Uh, I pay a price for this. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I happen still to be suffering from a pretty serious block. I have a terrible time getting myself to work, and I don't have any excuses to make. I don't have, you know, I work, I write entirely for a living. I don't, my children are raised and have left home. I never outline. Uh, my best ideas come at the typewriter. I write very fast. I triple space so that I'll have plenty of room for uh, repenting at leisure over what I've done. And at least at present in my life, I have to catch myself when I'm hot. And, uh, and then I work practically until I drop. And then I spend a lot of time sitting around staring at the ceiling and scratching my ear and you know, wondering why I'm in this damn profession of writing and all that sort of thing. It's not the, it's not the best way to work, but it's the only way that I presently know how. I would like to get spiritually grown enough to the point that I could work about four hours a day, five days a week, you know, and uh, go to church on Sunday or whatever to clean up my language. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't do any outlining. I don't do any researching. I was tempted to write a Mockingbird to uh, start watching silent movies, you know, and, and see if I could pick up some interesting stuff to use. And I realized that would have been just a dodge to avoid the typewriter. I never research anything. You paint a pretty bleak picture in terms of literacy in, in Mockingbird. Yeah. It comes from 25 years of being an English teacher. Do you see uh, just a decline in uh, literacy? My private experience as an English teacher has been that uh, Americans don't read books. They didn't read books in 1949 when I started teaching. They don't read books now in 1981. Television did make a difference. It deepened the slack of the slack jaws and, and, you know, and, and gave another great quantity of garbage to people to fill their lives with, but you know, there was other garbage around before television. A Mockingbird does sometimes, I think, weaken into an attack solely on television and on, on, and on uh, the modern world. And uh, weaken, I say, because I'm not completely convinced of all of those things that I say, but what, uh, what I am convinced of is that it is very bad for people to find substitutes for living their lives, and that's what I hope I do say, and say well from time to time in the book. It seems to me that in a number of your works, and mostly, uh, or, or most emphatically in Mockingbird, you're portraying a peculiar kind of tyranny where there is no mailed fist, there is no club or, or whip, but we're just cozened and cajoled into, into acquiescence yeah. to, our, to our own dominance. Yeah, and nobody much is doing it. The government of the United States, when it appears, is just a silly voice coming from a computer somewhere. You can do what you damn well please, really, in the world of Mockingbird, but nobody knows that. Or you can almost do what you please. I mean, the, uh, you know, Paul gets locked up for what he does, but then it's an easy jail to get out of. In a sense, it's also the same thing with Man Who Fell to Earth. I mean, he can do whatever he wants to. He, sure. He finds himself trapped. Yeah. In here. In right. His head. Right. Right. Uh, which I would gather relates to your own. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I seem to, I have to get an incarceration episode in every one of my books. Even Fast Eddie and the Hustler, although he's not locked up, he has his thumbs broken and is forced to depend upon Sarah, his girl, who maybe at death is really my mother, who presided over me in a kind of ghoulish way during my illness when I was a kid, and uh, becomes dependent on her. And none of those things were conscious in the writing of them, but they kind of sat me reading about it afterwards. You know, you do, you do find as a writer that you're... You're writing the same story over and over again, whether you want to or not. It's kind of scary. What was this illness? You mentioned having been in bed for a year. Yeah, rheumatic heart, rheumatic fever, and St. Vitus dance, all three of them. So I was diagnosed. I didn't feel sick, and I had St. Vitus dance, but I didn't dance. What do you see as your future? I mean, 
Do you, do you plan to write to stay writing science fiction? I want to work both sides of the street. When I finish Belson, I intend to write a realistic novel somewhat along the line of the Hustler, perhaps. I mean, it won't be about a gambler, but uh, but a book in that general vein of verisimilitude realism. You get tired of, of, of making up the world of science fiction. After a while, it gets shrill. It gets to be an automatic reflex to, uh, to start making up thought buses or whatever. It's fun for a while, but it, it gets routine. It seems to me, in your novels in particular, that there is a peculiar blend, uh, a sort of uh, a, a gentle tragedy, rather, rather than really horrendous tragedy, uh, with always a, a hopeful note at the end, as, for instance, in The Man Who Fell to Earth, for all the downfall that, that, that has happened to um, uh, Newton, at the end, he is surviving. He is somehow sticking it out and, and moving along, right. at least from he's, he's there today and he'll be there tomorrow, and maybe he's going to get it together and be all right. In, in Mockingbird, much more positively, uh, we have a, a rebirth of hope at the end. And in The Hustler, uh, again, uh, uh, Fast Eddie at the end, somehow overcomes, or seems to be overcoming, his own weakness and failures, and is going to go on to something better. Yeah. I think you've described it very well. Uh, I don't know how, I, how to account for it. <laughs> the, uh, I hardly have a comment to make. I'm really impressed with the way you, you know, the way, with the way you stated. It's not an effect that I aim at. I suppose it derives to some extent from my own unfinished sense of my own life and my own lack of knowledge as to whether it's comic or tragic. But I, I don't design my books to have a particular outcome, but they do wind up in a kind of uncertain way. Mockingbird ends up deliberately hopeful. I wanted it to be hopeful. I feel hopeful. I feel a lot more hopeful about life than I used to. I feel a hell of a lot better about living. I like the fact that the grass is green. I really am pleased with that in a way that I didn't used to be. You've been listening to an interview with author Walter Tevis, recorded in October 1981 in the stairwell of Cody's Bookstore in Berkeley. The funding for the Mockingbird adaptation fell apart, and the PBS movie was never made. Belson was renamed Steps of the Sun and was published in 1983, which was the same year as his novel The Queen's Gambit, which is now a Netflix miniseries. All books by Walter Tevis are now available as e-books. My co-interviewers were Richard A. Lupoff and Lawrence Davidson. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.